X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, June 25th. Today, back in the day, June 25th, 2011, Betty Roberts, the first woman to serve on the Oregon Court of Appeals and the Oregon Supreme Court, passed away. It was nine years ago, and it's an excuse to talk about Betty Roberts. Betty Roberts, born Betty Cantrell, was born in Arkansas City, Kansas, married a young soldier from Oregon, and she went back to college against his wishes. They later divorced. She became a school teacher, joined the school board, married Frank Roberts, a state senator. Frank Roberts went on to marry Barbara K. Huey, and she, under the name Barbara Roberts, became Secretary of State and later Oregon's first woman governor. She attended what is now Lewis and Clark Law School. Back then, it was called Northwestern School of Law. She eventually ran for the State House. In 1977, Oregon Governor Bob Straub, a former opponent of Betty Roberts, appointed her to the Oregon Court of Appeals to a new position when the court expanded from six to ten positions. Roberts was the first woman on that court. That wasn't that long ago. The chief judge had been against the nomination of woman to the court, and in 1982, she was appointed to the Oregon Supreme Court. She won election to a full six-year term later that year in 1982. And here's one opinion. State versus Charles, which adopted the duty to retreat in Oregon. This requires people to attempt to retreat in most situations before one can use deadly force even in self-defense. That same year, she wrote the opinion in the workers' compensation case Hewitt versus Safe that men and women have equal rights under the Oregon Constitution and so effectively gave Oregon an equal rights amendment. And she passed away today, back in the day, June 25th, 2011, at the age of 88. In her memoir, With Grit and by Grace, Breaking Trails in Politics and Law, Betty Roberts wrote that President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal made an indelible impression on her. Here's the quote, I began to understand that government is good when it helps its neediest citizens. And today, back in the day, June 25th, 2002, Tamir Rice was born. About 12 years later, Rice was carrying a replica toy gun, and he was killed by a 26-year-old white American police officer. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six headlines. An in-depth look at sacrifice zones with Eric DePlace from Sightlight Institute and Mike Selig from partner station KXRW and an interview with Cameron Witten and Salome Chimuku with an update on the Black Resilience Fund. First up, it is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. The legislative special session is continuing with limited opportunity for public input. This is X-Ray's original reporting. We've got more than four sources on it. Here's some of the things we're hearing. First of all, stuff was relatively pre-cooked. For activists who want the legislature to go big, there isn't a whole lot of opportunity to weigh in. The tight timeline of the legislature is not designed to take much input from the general public. In fact, unlike most public hearings in Salem, when you can show up and testify, for this, people had to reserve a spot a day in advance. In addition, they're just three days, maybe a fourth for the session. It makes potential amendments to the bills almost impossible to weigh in on, but for the most wired lobbyists. Proponents of the fast timeline say they're working to get something done quickly. The key phone call was last Friday that included legislators and lobbyists for the district attorneys and for the police. Here are four things that look like they are still happening. A duty to intervene. Requiring an officer who views an other officer doing the wrong thing to step in. Second, some creation of a statewide database for police misconduct. But right now, advocates are working to make that a stronger bill. An arbitration change that Senator Lou Frederick is working on that we've covered here before. And a ban on chokeholds. A couple things getting punted. The Attorney General investigation of use of force to ensure an independent review. That's getting punted. That passed in New York, Iowa, and Colorado. Not yet for Oregon. 
barring tear gas and rubber bullets. That looks like it's getting punted. Not even making the list yet on the agenda is getting rid of or significantly reforming qualified immunity, as Colorado just did, or changing the use of force statutes to require de-escalation prior to using deadly force. That's something that advocates have been asking for for a long time. It's a big priority. And also keeping police from buying military weapons from the federal government. Washington, D.C. just banned that. Remember when Los Angeles School District bought three grenade launchers and a mine-resistant ambush-protected armored vehicle? They sent back the grenade launchers. They kept the tank. By the way, Oregon police have purchased grenade launchers from the U.S. military as well. Stay tuned to the local for this stuff. For so many of our news summaries, we rely on the original reporting of other great journalists and outfits. On this stuff, our sources might be the best in the state. We'll do our best to try to give you the best information that we get. Jeremy Christian has been sentenced to life sentences without parole. Judge Cheryl Albright listened to more than a dozen of Christian's victims and victims' relatives make statements Tuesday and Wednesday. At the end of the testimony, Judge Albright sentenced Christian to a life sentence for each of his murder victims, as well as 25 additional years for other crimes. Christian was convicted of hate crimes against two teenage girls, one who was wearing a hijab, when Jeremy Christian launched on a racist, xenophobic rant on that crowded Max train back on May 26, 2017, about three years ago. Christian was charged with double murder for the stabbing deaths of Talesian Namkai Nirden Mesh, age 23, and Ricky Best, age 53. Before sentencing him, Judge Albright said this, I believe that you are a creative, thoughtful person, intelligent, that you desire to learn and grow. I hope one day you are able to accept responsibility for the grievous loss that you caused. The consecutive sentences ensure that Jeremy Christian will spend the rest of his life in prison. After four weeks of protests, the costs to the city are starting to be identified. According to Pamplin Media, the cost of business and police are close to $30 million. New Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle said the Bureau had incurred expenses of about $6.2 million. And the Portland Business Alliance say they've had an economic loss of $23 million. The majority of that tab comes from the loss of revenue at boarded-up shops. That's according to the Portland Business Alliance. We don't have double-checking on the methodology to compare those sales to COVID-19 shutdown revenue, for instance. And meanwhile, Oregon's congressional delegation is looking into a mysterious plane seen circling over downtown Portland protests. Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley are U.S. Senators, and Representatives Suzanne Bonamici, Herb Blumenauer, and Kurt Schrader signed on to a June 24th letter demanding the Marshals Service disclose information about an airplane that circled above Portland over 30 times on June 13th as thousands of protesters marched. They gave the U.S. Marshals Service a July 17th deadline to disclose whether or not the Marshals Service owns the aircraft who authorized its three-hour flight above the city, and what surveillance tactics were used. The agency for years has been known to use spying technology known as cell site simulators, or dirt boxes, equipped to Cessna airplanes to mine cell phone data from anyone in the plane's scope. However, as the delegate's letter notes, the technology was initially created for overseas surveillance. Here's the quote from the letter. Many Oregonians who have protested are justifiably concerned that their participation in these lawful protests will be logged, recorded, and used against them later by the government. As such, Congress has a responsibility to investigate these reports and make sure that the government's powerful surveillance tools are under close supervision of the courts and that Americans' rights are being protected. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. Oregon has reported 170 new cases on Wednesday, bringing the total number of cases to 7,444. There are 185 patients hospitalized, 29 on ventilators. We also know the infection rate has increased, which tells us pretty clearly that what's increasing the number of cases isn't merely more testing, but more coronavirus. 
As listeners of the local know, Oregon has been ahead of the game in COVID-19 prevention, consistently in the bottom few states of cases per 100,000 people. The good news, we're still relatively low in total cases. The bad news, in the past two weeks, Oregon has seen the sixth highest rate of increase in the country. Cases are up 152% in Oregon, according to COVID exit strategy. And in case you heard the news that the current president of the United States has ended federal funding for testing sites days after saying in his speech he wanted to slow down testing a little, none of the 13 sites they're cutting funding for are in Oregon. Those sites are in Texas, Illinois, New Jersey, Colorado, and Pennsylvania. Famous Portland restaurateur John Gorman is stepping away from his businesses amid a social media firestorm. In early May, John Gorman, the owner of Toro Bravo and other restaurants, got in a nasty social media feud with a trans woman of color. He reportedly used a transphobic slur as well as threatened her with vigilante justice. And now Gorman is divesting from seven of his restaurants, including Mediterranean Exploration Company, Israeli street food spots, Shalom Yal, and the new falafel spot, Mama Sesame. Burger joints, bless your heart, and the yet-to-open Yala. German will retain a stake in his flagship restaurant, Toro Bravo, as well as the Tasty Enterprise. Gorman had previously stepped away from his businesses in 2017 when he underwent brain surgery to deal with brain cancer. He returned to work in 2018. John and his wife, Renee, stressed that although his behavior had been erratic since the cancer began, it was in no way an excuse for his rage at the transgender woman from his social media and for mistaking full responsibility for his actions. They donated a sum to the Native American Youth and Family Center in the name of the harassed woman and promised to implement a more in-depth equity training program at their remaining restaurants. And some local political news. A poll done by the Ayanarone campaign has Wheeler and Ayanarone just about tied. They surveyed about 1,000 Portlanders last week. They used public policy polling. That's a firm out in North Carolina. 60% of the interviews were conducted by text message, 40% by phone. And if the election were held today, 33% of respondents would vote for Wheeler, according to the poll, 32% for Iannarone, and 35% they don't know yet. Asked to choose which issue is most important, 24% said recovering from coronavirus, 22% said police issues, 20% said housing and homelessness. By the way, housing and homelessness have been the number one issue in polls like this for several years in Portland. 17% said climate change or something else, and 4% said they're not sure. In addition, 63% of respondents said they support reallocating funding from the Portland Police Bureau to the city's communities of color. 22% opposed doing it, and 15% not sure. And here's Ayanna Rohn's quote, I look forward to a conversation about the trajectory of our city. This election is not just about who should lead us through our COVID-19 recovery, but who's got the tools to help us realize the future Portlanders want. The Wheeler campaign had a response. Mayor Wheeler remains focused on progressive, decisive leadership on both COVID-19 recovery and addressing racial justice in our city. These issues are critical to building the kind of inclusive, safe, and equitable community we all deserve. Reminder that back in the primary, Ted Wheeler got just under half and Sarah Anarone got just under a quarter. But there will be lots of new voters in the general election. And more from the State Employment Department. They've been releasing their numbers. We've been sharing their numbers. Those numbers have been focused upon a specific context. Here's your latest update. Oregon reportedly has around 70,000 unprocessed unemployment claims for self-employed Oregonians. The state has recently done a much better job of getting through the backlog of regular unemployment claims, but has really struggled to process the new claims for those applying under the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. That's PUA or the PUA. The PUA was enacted by Congress back in March. Expanded unemployment benefits to self-employed Americans as well as contract workers. Oregon didn't get its application process up and running until late April. They announced last week that backlog had reached at least 70,000 unprocessed claims. Department announced it's launching a new initiative, Focus PUA. 
to address that massive backlog. Assuming there's not a new explosion of PUA claims, the department estimates it'll be caught up by August 8th. Oregon now has a missing murdered indigenous persons coordinator. U.S. Attorney Billy Williams announced Friday the appointment of Cedar Wilkie Gillette to serve as the first missing and murdered indigenous persons coordinator for the District of Oregon. That job is going to include gathering reliable data to identify missing or murdered indigenous persons connected to Oregon, conducting outreach with tribal communities, and coordinating and developing protocols to address those cases. A 2018 Urban Indian Health Institute report found nationally more than 5,700 cases of indigenous women missing or murdered, but only 116 were logged into the Department of Justice missing person databases. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Are you familiar with the term sacrifice zone? Well, if not, you're about to be. A sacrifice zone is a geographic area that has been permanently impaired by environmental damage or economic disinvestment. These zones are often impacting black and indigenous people as well as native lands. Here's an in-depth look with Eric DePlace from Sightline Institute by Mike Seelig from partner station KXRW. There's a form of racism that not only involves the color of a person's skin, but it also involves where they live. They're called sacrifice zones. My name is Mike Seelig with KXRW Radio in Vancouver. I spoke recently with Eric DePlace with the think tank the Sightline Institute in Seattle. I asked Eric about what sacrifice zones are and what do they mean to people living within them. The question about sacrifice zones is, is um, exactly the right question to be asking at this time, especially those industrial facilities, oil refineries, um, petrochemical refineries. Um, there's a huge concentration of them, of them in the Gulf Coast. Uh, and it is not an accident that the sacrifice zones are very often, not always, but very often, most commonly next to black communities or next to indigenous communities. I mean, it is it is an expression of the long term structural problem this country has with racism, that we have located those facilities in those places, some of which have, those communities have been around much longer than the facilities have been. And then we have relaxed the regulations and relaxed the regulations uh, and then don't enforce the regulations we have. Um, so, So that literally people are being poisoned. Literally people are being given cancer. Literally their water is being contaminated. And that's been business as usual for decades in this country. And it's a story about race. It's a story about racism uh, as, as much as it's a story about the environment. And it's, it is important now that we start to see with, through the lens of race what some of this stuff really means um, because it's grotesque. And, the, and the, some of the worst stories are, you know, come from the Gulf Coast. They come from Louisiana, parts of Texas. Um, that's all really real. And I take it as sort of my... Uh, role because I work for a think tank that's focused on the Northwest to take a look at well what are the, what are we doing here in this region that's that's either better or 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 the same and in some ways we're fortunate in this region because we don't have a huge energy industry here uh, we have five refineries on Puget Sound they produce they they refine almost all of the um, gasoline and diesel and jet fuel that we used um, we don't extract a lot here thank goodness. Um, but what you do see is those refineries are located um, either you know adjacent to or right on top of uh, you know the Swinomish tribe, the Lummi tribe, um, and so a lot of the impacts from those places are affecting rural indigenous communities that have historically not had a lot of political power. 
And, you know, is that an accident? I don't think so. And the same story in Canada. Canada has a horrible record of, um, of treatment of indigenous communities. The tar sands is, um, I mean, you could go on for an hour about all of the abuses that have happened there, plus the pipeline construction that they're talking about. They want to take this one pipeline, triple it in size, um, to move to more tar sands oil to the West Coast, um, moving it right over indigenous lands. Um, it's been fought back um, against by the native communities there. Um, and, uh, you know, much to Justin Trudeau's um, lasting discredit, uh, you know, he was, um, has been cheerleading for that pipeline and really, you know, trampling over native rights and that gets built. It is going to put um, the San Juan Islands and Puget Sound and the Strait of Juan de Fuca right in the crosshairs. That's a, that is, that area is so important for tribes. Um, and so it's, that's just kind of one glimpse into the way in which sacrifice zones are real and they are almost always, um, you know, you, you don't typically sacrifice Portland or Bellevue, Washington or Seattle. You sacrifice Hoquiam or Tacoma or an indigenous community or a black community. Um, and that story just goes on over and over and over again. Um, and it's, um, it's, I, it's, I think, it, frankly, it's very upsetting. Sacrifice zones are just another example of where the health and the lives of black and indigenous people don't matter to the rich and powerful people who run our country. For X-Ray FM and KXRW Radio, this is Mike Selig. You can learn more about the Sightline Institute at sightline.org. If we want a better and more just place for all of us to live in, we must learn more and then do more right now. On June 1st, Cameron Witten and Salome Chamuku decided to focus their energy on supporting the Black community by creating the Black Resilience Fund. In a little less than a month, Cameron and Salome have received donations from over 10,000 donors and have fielded requests for support from over 4,000 Black Portlanders. This startup is breaking down barriers, building up trust, and reinstilling hope that each of us can make a difference. Good morning, Emily. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, we are just excited to see and thank Portland for the response we have seen so far in just three weeks times for the Black Resilience Fund. As of this moment, we have raised more than $824,000 to provide immediate support for Black Portlanders. It's amazing. That's incredible. Now, Cameron, you've been on before talking about the Black Resilience Fund, but if someone just happened to miss that, Back, back up a little bit and tell us how did the Black Resilience Fund come into existence? Great question. So the Black Resilience Fund is a emerging movement, or I like to call it baby movement, and it emerged in response to the times that we're in. We are experiencing a global pandemic. We are seeing an economic firestorm happen before our very eyes. And we are currently in a time where we are witnessing headline after headline of Black pain. The Black Resilience Fund was created as an opportunity to foster healing and resilience for all of us by taking care of our Black neighbors right here in our very own community. Uh, we offer immediate re relief from financial burdens so that people can focus on living their best lives. So we help from on a range of things, from a warm meal to groceries to an unpaid bill. And so uh, our fundraising goal right now is to raise a million dollars, which will ensure that we can support thousands of our black neighbors 
right here in our very own city. That's amazing. Now, Salome, this began on June 1st. What have these first few weeks been like? Um, these first few weeks have been kind of intense, actually. Um, the first few weeks have been a prime example of the days feeling long, but the weeks feeling short, in the sense that it's sometimes hard to think that this has only been about like three weeks, and we're entering into week four. Um, it's also kind of strange to think about the fact that, you know, in three weeks, we went from just Cameron and I doing everything to having over 300 active volunteers. Um, it's also just kind of intense to think about the impact that we've had um, in terms of how much money has gone out the door. And so the three weeks have been intense. Uh, they've been real. And it's been a very, I would say, emotional roller coaster ride. Mm. Salome, what does a typical day look like? It depends on which one of us you're asking that question to. Um, I tend <laughs> yeah. to focus more on the internal stuff and Cameron focus more on the external things. And so uh, for me, typically my day looks like about, you know, early in the morning I get up, um, I am doing some household stuff and taking care of some care of some things for the day. And then at about, I'd say 9 a.m., I'm training someone in the morning. Um, 10 o'clock I get on Zoom and I stay on Zoom until about five, maybe six doing intakes uh, alongside with our intakers, as well as at that same time, maintaining our Slack channel, maintaining our email, um, looking at our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then from there, um, I take a quick five seconds to shove my face, let my dog outside the house. And then when I come back in, I get prepared for our evening updates with Cameron. And then after I get done with those evening updates, I then go back into our data section, make sure that everybody who had interviews that day has been processed by our data folks, um, get back on the Slack channel to close out stuff for the day, and then go to sleep usually somewhere around like midnight, 1 a.m. Wow, that is a really busy day. And Cameron, what does your typical day look like right now? I wish I had one so I could tell you, Emily. Uh, I feel like the last three weeks I've woken up and how do you describe wind, sound, and theory? Uh, there's lots of interviews. There's lots of social media. There's lots of donor thank you letters. There's lots of volunteer recruitment. There's lots of sponsorship interviews. Um, it's been amazing to see, because I, I think the reality is, you know, when I first started this, you know, I did not expect for a lot to change, you know, after George Floyd was murdered. And the we're currently living in a paradigm shift. And there's a lot of people who have come to the realization like, oh my gosh, this has been going on for so long and we haven't been doing anything. And so I think what we've had to deal with with the Black Resilience Fund is the swell of people who are now taking action. And so we've been just trying to just be a, a dam to like take all of that in. Cause that's, that's thousands of people we're talking about. Just in three weeks time, we have over 10,000 individual donations. Right. And so that's a lot of people who have reached, you know, we built a website, uh, we've created merch, uh, we mm -hmm. created a fact page, we created, you know, a volunteer uh, a, a doc, uh, registration form a form for people who to apply for funds. And we've created a lot on the back end. We've created a grants team, which uh, uh, if you notice, we had a Juneteenth event 
that happened this past weekend where we had over 175 local small businesses participate. We put together by our volunteers because neither Salome or I actually were involved in that. That was a crew of amazing volunteers who made that happen in five days time. And so for people to ask me what my typical day is like, there isn't one, there isn't one. Uh, This week we'll be uh, launching our online store for people who wanna buy our t-shirts and buttons. We're soon gonna have a custom made necklace from Betsy and Aya. And then our organizational video is coming out this week. And we have more surprises in store for this weekend. And so nothing's typical yet, um, which I think is fine uh, because we're currently in the winds of change and we needed this kind of change for a long time. Yeah. And and Cameron, there are a lot of fundraisers who are watching your effort in awe of how the dollars have come in so quickly, so much support. You said 10,000 donors. What has been sort of the mechanisms, the secrets, the magic, you think, in raising that much money this fast? Uh, good question. <laughs> I think it's so important for us to to realize that during this time of difficulty that we can take action. Mm. And the Black Resilience Fund very clearly identified a need and identified a solution that did not exist. Mm. And for us, we have always emphasized that this is more than just helping somebody with paying bills. We're here to foster healing for our community. And it's been really amazing for us just in three weeks time to build a model like the Black Resilience Fund where if you are somebody who's applying for funds, you know you are being interviewed on Zoom by mm-hmm. a Black Portlander. If someone is coming to drop you off a check that you've earned, you are greeted by a Black Portlander. So it's amazing to be in the middle of this pandemic where we are self-isolating and to be in a time where we have every right to be mad at the world, that people are actually building community. and. For, you know, we, we, we share a testimonial every day of somebody who's been impacted by our work. You can go on Facebook and actually look up the hashtag we created called We Do Heal. You'll see dozens of people who have received funds so far who are proud that they got support. This is different than normal social services where we shame people who are in need and we think that by making them feel awful about who they are, that that's going to make them independent or empowered. We know that's the myth. You know, as some people who have experienced poverty, who have experienced homelessness, who are queer and black, uh, we know that our current structures have failed us and have demonized us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we are looking to turn the corner and to really focus on the future where we all feel empowered and loved. And I think that's really contagious for a lot of people to see that we are helping people and people feel like they actually are supported. Uh, it's, it's, it's a movement based off of love. And I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be on this love train. So Cameron, how can our listeners best support your work? Our listeners, I wanna thank the folks who are listening because I'm sure many of you have shared and have donated and we are uh, just around the corner when it comes to our $1 million fundraising goal. And I believe it's gonna be a powerful message for us to send and it's gonna help us really open the doors as we start talking to foundations to, as Lomi said, fill a, a, a gap so that we can ensure mm-hmm. that as many people who've applied do receive something. And mm-hmm. so uh, we need folks 
to, to continue to share, to continue to donate. You can host a Zoom party fundraiser. You know, we've had businesses do 10% days. We've had people do karaoke days. Salome did a sip and sketch where she drew art and raised 800 bucks in four hours time. So uh, if you've donated $25, donate again. If you donated $100, talk to a relative, someone who lives in Florida or Virginia, have them donate. Uh, we need 15,000 donors total to reach our $1 million fundraising goal. We are almost there. Um, we are working as hard as we can to show you, you know, how we are transforming lives. We are out here on X-Ray uh, promoting the importance of this work. And this is a, a big deal for Portland to in the middle of the I can't breathe era. You know, we've heard people that we've helped say things like, you've given me breathing room. Holding that check in my hand was one of the first was the first time I could come up for air. That is the kind of response that we're having right now. And so let's make a powerful statement for Portland and the rest of this world to hear that here in, in this town that you know has been known for being the whitest major city in America, that we are showing up for our black neighbors and we are committed to healing and resilience. Mm, I love that. Salome, what would you add? How can our listeners best support your work? Um, yeah, I I tend to be the one of the two of us. It's like donate and then donate again and then donate a third time. Um, but Cameron already said that. So I will say that for our listeners, a great way to support is to, um, you know, post, share, let others know about us. And I think most importantly, um, not be afraid to give because uh, mm -hmm. I think that some folks uh, do have some hesitation about donating because they're so used to the same old same old when they donate and i mean that in the mm -hmm. sense of like they're used to being able to see the recipient they're used to being able to have so much power and control when donating funds as opposed to funds being donated to relinquish some power actually and so i think that that's um kind of how i think listeners can help is trusting trusting that the community knows what it needs and that it will do well with the dollars that you give and I think that um, if you're interested in volunteering, volunteer. We need everybody. Um, mm -hmm. I will find a job for you, <laughs> no matter how how much time you have or how little time you have. I will find work for you to do. Um, and most of our volunteers actually work virtually. So oh, great. there's no reason not to volunteer. <laughs> I love that. And Cameron, where should folks go to find out more information? So for folks who want to, uh, just help promote and help get involved with the Black Resilience Fund. Uh, we are on all the major social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter at Black Resiliency with a Y. Uh, we are on Instagram, Black Resilience Fund, Facebook, Black Resilience Fund. And please go to our website, www.blackresiliencefund.com. Excellent. Salome, any final words? Um, I think that sums it all up. I, I, I do definitely appreciate the time that you've had us here and letting us talk about Black intersectionality along with the Black Resilience Fund. Excellent. Well, I hope you two will come back. We'll have a yet another, in, another update, especially when we get to that $1 million mark. Um, thank you two so much for all that you're doing in this community. It's been incredibly inspiring to watch and the impact you have is going to it's going to have impact for generations. So thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good morning. You too. 
Again, that is Cameron Witten and Salome Chamuku from the Black Resilience Fund. You can find out more either at GoFundMe or you can give a donation to the Black Resilience Fund or their website is blackresiliencefund.com. Thanks to Eric, Mike, Cameron, and Salome for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. It's nice to be back. Tomorrow's the last day for Best of Portland voting. You can vote for X-Ray by finding the link at xray.fm. We're also thinking about it as a 15-second practice run for the November election. Again, that link is bit.ly slash xrayfm2020. Stay safe, everybody. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.